According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17, and we're picking up where we left off uh, last week. Remember, um, or maybe you don't remember, have I announced this yet? We're here uh, today, and we're here next week. Today is the 10th, next week is the 17th. Uh, I will not be in town on the 24th. And so uh, we, there will not be a Proverbs class on Wednesday the 24th. And we will have uh, pulpit coverage for the evening. Cornelius will be speaking that evening on the 24th, but I will not get pulpit coverage for the Wednesday morning class. So you have the day off, and then we'll be back on the 31st. All right. God of spirit, he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father's faithfulness. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for we thank you for our memory verse. We thank you for the prayer that Paul offered on behalf of the Colossians. And we pray it for ourselves, Father, that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Because, Father, that's why we're here. That's why we're learning the Word of God. That's why we're growing. We want to walk in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord and bearing fruit in every good work. So you're teaching us good principles with our Bible verses. And uh, we're just delighted to learn these things together as a congregation. We call upon your faithfulness now this hour to bless our time, to hedge us about and protect us, to, uh, to feed us from your truth, Father. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, Proverbs 17 and uh, dealing with um, really a horrible verse in verse 13. We got through most of it, but I think we still have to discuss the ongoing ramifications. And that's what this verse speaks about. So he who returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. And this uh, verse doesn't say what you think it says, or if you read it too quickly and you don't process it, you think it's saying what a lot of other verses say, is of course that that we will be mistreated and, and that we don't want to return evil for evil, Right? So when someone does us evil, we want to turn the other cheek. We want to return good for evil. We want to return a blessing instead. We have several passages, Old Testament, New Testament alike, that uh, make it very clear that we're not to return evil for evil. And that's, that, that, that's kind of a no-brainer. But this passage doesn't say don't return evil for evil. It says evil for good. This is in one of those rare situations that instead of doing you evil, your neighbor actually did you a benefit. <laughs> Somebody did you good, okay? And it was probably not, um, probably not an unbeliever. It was probably a believer that, that, that did you good. And so the idea that someone has done you a blessing and then you're going to return evil for that, why? I mean, what motivates that? How twisted and dark does your soul have to be? that you respond to an act of goodness with an act of evil. 
And I think it, it does. It shows a fractured soul. It shows uh, the, the, the depths of things. And, and so last week as we were looking at this, we actually recognized that Israel's first two kings illustrated what Israel's third king wrote about. Solomon, of course, is the third king, and he wrote this in Proverbs. Um, but Solomon's uh, lesson here in Proverbs 17.13 is illustrated by Saul and David. And, uh, and so that's the point there in 1 Samuel 24.17. And, and um, I don't mind rereading that. I, don't, I won't read the whole chapter like last week. It's, uh, it's a great episode where David's on the run and Saul's hunting him down and David's hiding in the cave. And if, if he wanted to kill Saul, he could have done it. But the key expression that's found in verse 17 here, 1 Samuel 24, it says, um, when David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? Then Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me while I have dealt wickedly with you. And really, this is the this is the pattern. David, in his youth, had been a blessing to King Saul. David had played the harp. David had driven demons away. David had blessed Saul again and again and again. Uh, obviously, killing the Goliath was a big help. Uh, and then other things. I mean, he had been a military commander. Um, he had given Saul rest on every side from from their Philistine enemies and so forth. And so everything David had ever done for Saul had been good. And then Saul returns evil for the goodness that, that David had extended to him. And so we have the illustration of that. We have another illustration with, with Nabal, David and Nabal, that David had blessed Nabal. His men had blessed Nabal's men. And uh, David's... Uh, uh, forces had been a, a wall of protection and had been a blessing to the shepherds uh, of uh, of Nabal's flocks, and yet he had returned evil for the good, and that uh, nearly sparked a, a terrible uh, apostasy and, and and horrible sin on David's part. That uh, thankfully Abigail was able to rescue him from. We have other examples, and uh, and these examples that are Davidic, and I think the reason why. Uh, it's so common to David is because David is the greatest type of Christ that we have anywhere in the Old Testament. And really, this is a principle that we're studying in terms of returning evil for good that applies to to the Christ more than anybody else. Obviously, Jesus comes to seek and to save the lost. Jesus comes to redeem uh, the fallen humanity and look what, uh, which is the ultimate good, and look what they returned. You know, they returned evil. They crucified him. They crucified him. And so the the fact that uh, the, the great type of Christ, David, is illustrative, illustrative of what we're dealing with here is not surprising. So let's look at these Psalms and then let's talk about some ongoing consequences because I think we want to have what the Bible describes for us is the, the really serious ramifications of the hand of God's discipline when you do return evil for good. Someone that has blessed you and then you in kind return evil to them. That is just uh, about as, as bad as it gets. All right, so Psalm 35. We got four Psalms here that address this. Psalm 35, 12. Psalm 
they repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. And this is, uh, well, there's a larger context here that deals with, if we, um, how much of this do I want to read? The whole thing? (laughs) Um, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. That's verse 1 of Psalm 35. All of these are Davidic. A Psalm of David. Take hold of buckler and shield and rise up for my help. Draw also the spear and the battle axe to meet those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let those be ashamed and dishonored who seek my life. Let those be be turned back and humiliated who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them on. So when we talk about the angel of the Lord, we talk about the angel of death, we talk about an angel of cruelty. Uh, This is what uh, is being addressed here as David is really offering an imprecatory prayer for the uh, downfall of these enemies. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. For without cause, without cause, he did them good. They're returning evil for good. Without cause, they hid their net for me. Without cause, they dug a pit for my soul. Let destruction come upon him unawares, and let the net which he hid catch himself. Into that very destruction, let him fall. And this is common. This is actually very common. And uh, God will bring upon the, the, that worker of wickedness his own net, his own trap, or his own pit as he falls into it. Then he says, and my soul shall rejoice in the Lord, I sh- it shall exult in his salvation. All my bones will say, Lord, who is like you, who delivers the afflicted from him who is, who is too strong for him, and the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him. Malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good to the bereavement of my soul. But as for me, When they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. So clearly, he was an intercessory prayer word. Think about Jesus dying on the cross and praying for the people, saying, hold this not against them. And here's David, and and Job was the same way. Job was innocent when he was afflicted, and he had been a blessing to his generation. So as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled my soul with fasting, and my prayer kept returning to my bosom. I went about as though it were my friend or brother. I bowed down mourning as one who sorrows for a mother. So he had done nothing but good for them and had pleaded in, at the throne of grace. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered themselves together. The smiters whom I did not know gathered together against me. They slandered me without ceasing. Like godless jesters at a feast, they gnashed at me with their teeth." And so this is it. And David, really, until the time of Christ, I don't know anyone understood betrayal uh, quite like uh, quite like David. So that's Psalm 35. Let's go over to Psalm 38. <clears throat> psalm 38. Again, it's a psalm of David for a memorial. And... Um, and he admits it. He owns up to what he's uh, receiving here. <clears throat> and um, yeah, in these early verses, you see that he's fully uh, repentant and he's admitting his consequences for what, uh, what he's getting. 
But down to verse 20. Let's see. I guess without reading the whole psalm. There's a crowd that's just thrilled to death that he's, uh, he's getting what he's getting. So verse uh, 12, or even verse 11, My loved ones and my friends stand aloof from my plague. My kinsmen stand afar off. Now if those are your friends and family that, <clears throat> that are putting distance there, what do you think your enemies are doing? Okay, Those who seek my life lay snares for me. And those who seek to injure me have threatened destruction. They devise treachery all day long. And so this is what we all deal with when, when betrayal comes. But I, like a deaf man, do not hear. I am like a mute man who does not open his mouth. Yes, I am like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no arguments. For I hope in you, O Lord. At a certain point, what are you going to say? What are you going to do? They're bent on their on your destruction. You just... Give it to the Lord. You surrender everything to the judgment function and the justice of God. And you leave your case in the, in the Supreme Court of Heaven. For I hope in you, O Lord, you will answer, O Lord my God. For I said, may they not rejoice over me, who, when my foot slips, would magnify themselves against me. For I am ready to fall, and my sorrow is continually before me. For I confess my iniquity, I am full of anxiety because of my sin, but my enemies are vigorous and strong, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. And those who repay evil for good, they oppose me because I follow what is good. Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Do not be far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. And so these are the dynamics of what we deal with. And if it, whether we're innocent, whether we're guilty, whether we're getting what God would have for us to get, is between us and the Lord, but for these enemies to come alongside and say, aha, now is our chance to betray him. Now is our chance to do him evil. Um, no, we don't rejoice when someone is under the hand of God's discipline. We just, we fear. It's uh, you who are spiritual, restore such a one looking to yourself too, lest you also be tempted. Uh, if, if you see a brother or a sister that's under God's judgment, it's not the time to attack them. Oh my goodness, no. It's the time in sacrificial love to pray for them, to love them, to serve them, to hopefully bring about their repentance. The worst thing you can do is to uh, return evil for good. And <clears throat> that's uh, the warning that we keep seeing here again and again. All right, over to Psalm 55 now. Psalm 55. Another Davidic psalm, and uh, I'm headed for verses 12 through 15. Again, there's enemies. They are uh, plotting against him. They bear a grudge against me. You can spot that in verse 3. Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me. In anger, they bear a grudge against me. And uh, then comes the prayer. Verse 12, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, and then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. 
We discussed last week the, the role of Ahithophel that he played in the betrayal of David to be a counselor to, uh, to Absalom in the rebellion. And this is what hurt so much because we who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. Can you imagine? I mean, this would be like Timothy betraying Paul or something. This would be something like two believers that had been in the scriptures, had been in ministry, had, had gone through the, you know, it'd be like, um, you know, Pastor Cliff betraying me. Or I mean, just imagine when you have that kind of background and you have that kind of intimacy and that kind of, of walk with the Lord. And fundamentally, before Ahithophel betrayed David, what did David do? He, yeah, the adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. I mean, that was like a stab in the gut for Ahithophel. So um, in some respects, what we're illustrating here is that David is the one who returned evil for good. Ahithophel was simply returning evil for evil. And so, I mean, we're looking at it and this is it's just ugly every way around. So, we who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling, in their midst. But as for me, I shall call upon God, and the Lord will save me. Time and time again, they are bent on, on your destruction, but David just leaves himself in uh, the Supreme Court of Heaven. says, God, this is yours to deal with. Finally, Psalm 109, 109 verses 4 through 13. Psalm 109. A lot of jokes come from this psalm. And uh, I think I've made them too. (laughs) All right. Doesn't mean they're any less corny or they're appropriate, but Psalm 109. Again. For the choir director of Psalm of David. O God of my praise, do not be silent, for they have opened the wicked and deceitful mouth against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They have also surrounded me with words of hatred and fought against me without cause. In return for my love, they act as my accusers. Now, do you know who the accuser is? The accusers, the slanderers, the adversary. It's a title for Satan. It's a demonstration of, of where they are in the angelic conflict and where David is in the angelic conflict. Uh, trusting in the Lord. But in return for my love, they act as my accusers. But I am in prayer. Thus they have repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man over him. And let an accuser stand at his right hand. And this is, um, actually this is puzzling. It's, uh, is this David asking this on an imprecatory basis on behalf of his enemies? Or is this, are these the words out of their mouth? I think that's the better understanding. These are the words out of their mouth that they want to bring David's fall down. See, or downfall. Appoint a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. All right? And this is, they're just bent on getting David off the throne, getting David out of there. They're bent on rebelling against the Lord's authority. 
They hate His authority because they hate the Lord. See, this verse, by the way, gets quoted in the book of Acts when Judas Iscariot uh, is replaced by Matthias as the twelfth apostle of the Lamb and and uh, the thing there. Um, this is where jokes happen when you don't like the president and you want his days to be few, let another take his office. And, and so if you, if, if you didn't vote for the president in office, then, then people will quote this and say, ha ha ha, isn't that, aren't we clever for our biblical humor? All right. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. <laughs> wow. Okay. So uh, we don't, not only do we want him out of office, we actually want him dead. And uh, let his children wander about and beg. Let them seek sustenance from their ruined homes. Yikes. They don't even get life insurance. They don't even get, uh, I mean, so what they want is the downfall of his entire house. They want the ruin of his entire estate. Is how much they hate him. And it's curious because this is now, we're going to see, the consequence for this sin is actually the very thing that they want. The consequence for this sin, when God administers it, actually has a consequence to the house, is what Proverbs 17.13 stresses. But we see it here. So let his children wander about and beg. Let them seek sustenance far from their ruined homes. Let the creditor seize all that he has. Let strangers plunder the product of his labor. Let there be none to extend loving kindness to him, nor any to be gracious to his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off in a following generation. Let their name be blotted out. Wow. Okay. That was curious because if you might recall, I mean, that's, that's ugly, right? Um, but what did we, how did we start this whole study? What did it say in Proverbs 17, 13 about returning evil for good? It says, he who returns evil for good, here's the consequence, evil will not depart from his house. That there is a consequence applied. And it's applied to a larger target than just the he who, he who returns evil for good. His house faces the consequence. And that's um, commensurate with what it was that they were attempting themselves. This is why it's double compound discipline. This is why when God turns it around, he takes the very wickedness that you are plotting and he now applies it. You wanted the downfall of David's entire house. Here's what's going to happen now to your entire house. You were hoping for his children to be vagabonds in the streets and helpless and, and to have no help whatsoever. Here's what God judicially is assigning to your children. All right. This is a serious sin with household consequences. Even generational, national consequences for the betrayal of Jesus Christ. And we'll see this as well. So this is a serious sin with household consequences. Talking about the house, right? In, uh, we don't use house so much other than the house of Windsor or the house of the British royal household. Who, by the way, it used to be the house of Hanover 
until it was unpopular to be German in World War One, <laughs> and so they uh, they came up with the House of Windsor as an alternative, more British-sounding name. But the descendants of Sophia of Hanover are what they are. All right, the House of but understand your house. That's your. That's not just your the, the 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 building you sleep in at night. It's not just your immediate family, but it's your heritage. It's your it's your uh, descendants is your house. Let's look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah 18. In addition to these psalms we've been looking at, I think this makes the point very well. Jeremiah 18, and the prayer here starts in uh, 20 or 19, but... Goodness. It's a great chapter here with the potter and the clay. But verse 18 says, Then they said, Come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. So if there was a runner-up to the most Christ-like, you know, David was very Christ-like, Jeremiah was very Christ-like, the way he was abused and mistreated, the way he was hated by his brethren, a prophet rejected by his people, uh, even so much so that when uh, John the Baptist arose, they thought maybe it was a resurrected Elijah, or a resurrected Jeremiah. They said, maybe you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. All right. So they said, come and let us devise plans against Jeremiah. Surely the law is not going to be lost to the priest, nor counsel to the sage, nor the divine word to the prophet. Come on and let us strike at him with our tongue and let us give no heed to any of his words. So here's his reply in prayer. Do give heed to me, O Lord, and listen to what my opponents are saying. Should good be repaid with evil? For they have dug a pit for me. Remember how I stood before you to speak good on their behalf, so as to turn away your wrath from them. <laughs> Moses had to do the same thing. Moses, uh, The Lord told Moses, stand back, I'm going to blast these people. And Moses stood before the people and said, no, Lord, don't do that. You can't do that. Here's Jeremiah doing the same thing, pleading on behalf of the people. And yet, they're digging a pit for him. Therefore, give their children over to famine and deliver them up to the power of the sword. Let their wives become childless and widowed. Let their men also be smitten to death. Their young men struck down by the sword in battle. May an outcry be heard from their houses when you suddenly bring raiders upon them. For they have dug a pit to capture me and hidden snares for my feet. Yet you, O Lord, know all their deadly designs against me. Do not forgive their iniquity or blot out their sin from your sight. But may they be overthrown before you. Deal with them in uh, the time of your anger. And so, again, it's an imprecatory prayer and it's calling upon God and it's it's stating that the divine discipline consequences are commensurate with what it was they were hoping to accomplish against divine authority. They were lifting their hand against the Lord's anointed. They were seeking His death. They were seeking an end to His house. And the divine consequences come back to them. It returns like a boomerang. It comes back to them. The very thing that they had desired against Jeremiah. 
Now, the pinnacle of this is with Jesus Christ, and uh, there are additional consequences here. When we look at this, John 10, I hope we think in these terms. I know it's awkward. It's, uh, if we're going to understand the Scriptures, we've got to put ourselves back in a... um, you got to interpret based upon the day and age it was written. You also have to apply based upon what God intends. What God intends. And so God intended for us to function as families. God intended for us to train up the next generation and the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. God intended for us to, to uh, communicate His Word to that next generation and to set that priority And uh, he holds us accountable. He holds us accountable. And that doesn't change just because the Old Testament gave way to the New Testament. We still have patterns in the New Testament whereby a pastor actually can be disqualified from the pulpit ministry if his his family life's a wreck. If he can't manage his own household, how will he attend to the house of God, we're told? See, those principles are still valid today today. You say, well, we don't have the, the extended families. We don't have the clans. We don't have the, the tribes like we used to have. Well, to the extent we do have them, yes, we do have them. To the extent that we do, we do, and we are accountable. And so are we setting that example? Not only with uh, the children that we raise, but when they're raised and gone, are we still living in the Word of God? Are we still, as older believers, setting that example for our children or for our grandchildren? nieces and nephews and whatever the extended family is. Do we set that priority? All right. Because when we go into darkness, how great is that damage? What is the impact of that? All right, well. (laughs) John chapter 10, and uh, here's the, I just like this verse because I'm going to link it together with Matthew 27, but Um, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him and Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father for which one of them are you stoning me? So you talk about returning evil for good. (laughs) He's doing good. He's teaching the word of God. He's performing miracles. He's healing. He's doing everything. And um, so he says, uh, uh, I showed you many good works from the Father for which one of them are you stoning me? Isn't that great? You talk about a sanctified sarcasm. And, uh, you know, w- which good thing is it you're stoning me for here? You know, I just want to be clear. Was it, was it walking on water? Was it feeding the 5,000? Was it healing the lepers? You know, I just want to know. And so they answered, uh, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. This is right after he said, I and the Father are one. Now, it's not blasphemy if it's true, right? It is God in the flesh. And the Old Testament said it would be God in the flesh, that God would become a man. The the name Emmanuel means God with us. The the prophesied Christ was going to be God himself to come and redeem his people. And so when he says he is the Christ, when he says he is God, when he says I and the Father are one, there's no blasphemy in any of that. The blasphemy is them. 
rejecting the Christ and hating Him for the truth that He speaks. Remember, David was hated because of the truth that he spoke. Jeremiah was hated because of the truth that he spoke. And so in all these cases, it is good that, has, that evil is being returned for the good. Matthew 27. And this, you'll see why I'm linking this here. I like that phrase, for what good thing. They are returning evil for good. But in Matthew 27 now, Pilate's trying to release Jesus and not have him put to death. And uh, he says, hey, we've got this tradition where on, uh, on the feast, on, uh, on Passover, I can release a prisoner for you and, and pronounce him innocent, give a pardon. Shall I, uh, shall I release Jesus called the Christ? So, um, and he wants to. He absolutely wants to. And, um, but the people keep shouting, no, give us Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said, crucify him. He said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more saying, crucify him. Even Pilate understands this is evil being returned for good. And a pagan Gentile says, this is wrong. <laughs> All right. And so uh, what evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And the people said, and this is remarkable because it's their own vow, it's their own taunt, but they are quoting Scripture. They are reflecting the truth of God's judgment upon families, houses, generations, even a nation in this circumstance. All the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. You talk about defying God taunting the living God, the living God who will not be mocked. His blood shall be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. And you think about the generational accountability, and you think about the judgment of God that in just 37 years is going to hit. I mean, this generation... It's almost comparable to the the 40 years in the wilderness. It's what's going to happen to that generation from 33 A.D. to 70 A.D. It's, 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 just read Josephus sometime. Read the Jewish wars. Read the siege of Jerusalem. Read, the, read what uh, that vow led to. And it's horrendous. All right. Well, enough on that. Back to Proverbs. So returning evil for good has household consequences. For David, it was household consequences his entire life. He returned evil for good and the murder of Uriah. Uriah had done nothing but good for him in all that service. And uh, the house of David had evil for the rest of his days. And uh, we got to deal with this. All right. Next verse. The best strife is never started. <laughs> yeah, you're better off just not even starting it. 
Because the uncontrollable power of water can get out of hand if it's let loose. What does it say here? Verse 14, it says, The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. This is a synthetic parallelism where uh, both halves are essentially saying the same thing. The second half is an extension of the first half or an, or, uh, an, an intensification of the first half. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So the first, um, the first ugly thing said, the first blow struck, the first punch, the first slap, the first uh, biting comment. And it's like the letting out of water. It's like a, a breach in the dam. You know, it's just a tiny little prick of, of, uh, of water, but what, what's, that, what's coming next, right? Yeah, that little leak shows you that the, the integrity of the dam itself is in question and it's, the rest of it's coming through, okay? That's what water does. Water's powerful. And so that, that beginning of strife is like letting out water so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. It's just going to get uglier the longer it goes. In fact, what does it edify? Just stop it now. Stop the quarrel now. Uh, Proverbs 17 uh, has a parallel text in Ecclesiastes, and even under human viewpoint, you can uh, observe a benefit to this. Ecclesiastes 7 I'm thinking about teaching Ecclesiastes at some point. Also, I was challenged uh, in Houston at the Schaefer Conference that uh, Song of Solomon could be uh, could be an edifying book. Well, of course, it can be. It's in the Bible. <laughs> All right, Ecclesiastes. But the uh, speaker asked for a show of hands and how many doctrinal pastors had ever taught Song of Solomon to their congregations. And uh, there weren't many hands. I don't think I saw a hand up. But <clears throat> I did in the Through the Bible series, but that was just one week out of 52. And there you go. All right. Anyway, Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 8. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. <laughs> Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. And that's... Uh, I guess that's a human viewpoint way of saying, you know, the beginning of an argument's never fun. Um, the best strife has never started. How about Matthew 5, verses 39 through 41? <clears throat> the thing about fights, <coughs> and especially... I mean, physical fights, verbal fights, whatever. When does revenge stop? Because somebody struck the first blow, but there was a provocation, so who, what, what provoked the provocation? <laughs> and then when it did get to a blow, then there's a second blow, and then there's revenge for the revenge, and, and so forth. Anyway. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever uh, slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. And this is a way to de-escalate if something starts. 
Okay, now we're talking about interpersonal relationships here. We're talking about the dynamic of, of, uh, uh, of, of people and our dealings with people, personality conflicts, social circumstances. We're not talking about uh, politics or we're not talking about a nation that has a right of self-defense. A nation has a right to have armed forces and to, to protect your, your borders. It's, it's insanity that people that want to take turn the other cheek and apply it to a geopolitical application as if government should be, uh, should be held to that. <clears throat> We're just talking about interpersonal relationships at this point. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let them have your coat also. Talk about resolving a conflict. Um, you know, if he wants, if he wants something bad enough, you might just decide, you know what? It's not worth the fight. It's not worth the legal expenses. It's not worth the other damage that gets done. So you want my shirt? Okay. Have my, have my coat also. Is, is, is my shirt going to ameliorate the problem here? Are you going to be satisfied with that? Well, now you're going to be extra satisfied. And whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Okay, I'll go the extra mile. I'll go three miles. I'll go five miles. There's no limit to this because I want to reconcile. I want to resolve the issue. I don't want to fight about it. All right? So far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I want to, I want to glorify Jesus Christ. And if, if I'm a believer and you're a believer and I want to apply the Word of God, I assume you want to apply the Word of God, can't we, can't we just work this out? Can't we deal with this? Just between ourselves as before the Lord. All right? Because if you don't have that attitude, if you're not following this teaching, then the proverb holds true as we saw it there. It's just, it's just like water over the dam. It's just about to, about to burst. If you don't de-escalate it on step one, then it just gets darker and darker each step down the road. The uncontrollable power of water can get out of hand if it's let loose. And this was uh, the rebuke against uh, Reuben in Genesis 49. There's a reason why the fourth-born son became the first-born son in, uh, the, in Jacob's inheritance when Israel pronounced prophetic utterance to his sons. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrolled as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. All right, so again, there's the imagery there. Uncontrollable power of water can get out of hand if it's let loose. And so, yeah, I agree with Proverbs 17, 14. It's better just not to even start it. The, the best fight is the, uh, the one that's never started. Because what do you think it's going to accomplish? And what's provoking it anyway? What provokes strife? Does God provoke strife? No. It's the wisdom from below. It's not the wisdom from above, okay? Are you tired of looking at James chapter 3? Do I take you there too many times? James chapter 3. 
I figure if I take you there 3,000 times, you're going to remember it. This is my go-to chapter for contrasting the wisdom above and the wisdom below. Because there's two different kinds of wisdom. Verse 13 says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, okay, remember the striving we're talking about in Proverbs, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above. This is the other kind, the kind you don't want. This kind is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, notice, there is disorder and every evil thing. That's why the best strife has never started. We don't want, if if we're not going to pick a fight, we're not going to start some kind of a strife or some kind of a conflict, what's that? That's not coming from God's wisdom. It's coming from the wisdom from below. It's earthly, natural, demonic. But the wisdom from above is first what? Pure, then peaceable. No strife in that. Gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So use the wisdom of God, sow peace one to another. Don't be starting strife. The best strife is the strife that never starts. <laughs> okay, Because once you start it, it's, it's, uh, it's hard. To, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. All right. To mix a metaphor. Inverted justice is not just a perversion, it's an abomination. Next verse, Proverbs 17, 15. See, these are going quicker, aren't they? Most of these preach themselves. Yeah, the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Simple. All right, verse 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike, are an abomination to the Lord. This is inverted justice. This is not just um, injustice. This is not just a miscarriage of justice. This is a complete inversion. This is turning it on its head. This is calling good evil and evil good. Because if you're going to justify the wicked, you know they're guilty. You know they merit the condemnation. But you're pronouncing them not guilty. You are justifying them. They get off scot-free. And then you have the innocent. And you know they're innocent. The righteous. And you condemn them. Again, it's like releasing Barabbas and crucifying the Christ. Barabbas was a terrorist. And he came to his own gruesome end anyway in a couple short years. He's He's not even going to live long enough to see the destruction of Jerusalem. He's going to be, uh, he comes to a horrible end very quickly after 33 AD, according to the traditions we have. All right. Inverted justice. It's not just a perversion. When we talk about perverting justice, that's one thing. A perversion is, is um, 
it's a form of what God designs. It just has a, a, an evil twist to it. This isn't even that. This isn't even a perversion of justice. There's nothing that could be called justice about this. This is a complete and total abomination. I think we understand the difference there. Same uh, chapter in Proverbs 17 down in verse 26. It is also not good to find the righteous nor to strike the noble for their uprightness. Again, it's inverted justice. That's where you are calling the evil good and the good evil when you are finding the righteous. Wait a minute. You're supposed to find wrongdoers. You know, it'd be like APD writing non-speeding tickets. (laughs) Say, yes, you you are below the posted limit. Here's your fine. Okay? Whereas the people that are exceeding the posted limit, you see it's inverted. It's absolutely backwards. And then to strike the noble for their uprightness. To, uh, to assign capital punishment for somebody that followed every law. Followed every command. Alright, it's an abomination we're told. Both of them alike are an abomination. Okay, Remember the abomination. This is what sparks the wrath of God quicker than anything else. God pronounces woe for such a thing in Isaiah chapter 5. God pronounces woe. And I think our generation is exactly right here. 21st century America is Isaiah chapter 5. Verse 18 says, Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes. We have such a godless culture where sin and iniquity is so heavy, the only way they can carry it around is they've got to drag it like oxen pulling a cart. And they do. <laughs> They're so weighted down with their chains and they're dragging it because they can't leave it behind. They can't let it go. Okay? And it's the imagery is, uh, is uh, it's unmistakable. It's almost like the, uh, the, uh, the uh, um, Scrooge and Marley, what am I talking about? And the Christmas Carol. Terrible theology and awful. The idea that he's made his own links. But the metaphor... Remember when Marley comes in, he's dragging his chain, and Scrooge can't believe how heavy that chain is, and he tells Scrooge, yeah, yours is worse than this one. Okay? Now, I'm not subscribing to that theology, but what I am saying, this verse actually speaks in a metaphor to those who are dragging iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes. Okay? This is them in time, during their life, dragging this stuff around everywhere they go. And they say, let him make speed. Let him hasten his work that we may see it. They're very taunting, taunting God for his slowness while they're slowed down with their own iniquity. Let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Come on, God, get with the program. We're tired of waiting on you. Let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. 
They're essentially mocking God for being slow about his promise, as some count slowness. Okay? Yeah, they've been waiting uh, all these years for the coming of the Messiah. And as far as they're concerned, they, uh, they're, they're the mockers. They're skeptical. It's not going to happen. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. This is what we're talking about. Who substitute. So it's not just that they mix them. They actively assign. It's not just a confusion. It's not just uh, that they're immature. It's not that they're not taught or they don't know any better. It's not ignorance. It's not immaturity. It's not um, pithy, the naive. This is willfully reassigning the categories. This is knowing for a fact that this is good, knowing for a fact that this is evil, and then calling the one the other and vice versa. You know for a fact that this sin is evil and you call it good and you celebrate it. That's our culture. They call evil good and good evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. We have the light of the revealed Word of God. But we have set that aside as myth and we are accepting the darkness of so-called science, what is falsely called knowledge. Substituting darkness for light and light for darkness. And we're actually to the point now where if, uh, if parents are trying to teach creationism, if parents are trying to teach biblical standards of sexuality, biblical standards of family, then, uh, then that is child abuse because you are depriving your children of scientific uh, understanding. And uh, that's upon us now. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. God says this world's wisdom is foolishness. Clever in their own sight. Anyway, it's a, it's a ferocious chapter. And it's, uh, it's not just a perversion. It's one, thing for perver- it's one thing for God's design to be perverted. It's something else for God's design to be inverted. I like that. I should trademark that. That could become a book title. But from perversion to inversion, that's... Uh, the, the complete and total opposite, which becomes an abomination. The abomination that God expresses His wrath towards. Alright, well next week we'll come back and pick up here. I want to spend some time... Those verses went quickly. I'm glad we got through those because the next the next thing we had to deal with here... Why is there a price in the hand of a fool to buy wisdom when he has no sense? That's going to take some work. And then when I come back from Reno, we'll be looking at verse 17. A friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. And there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. We know that. We have some marvelous truth there. So next week we'll handle verse 16. Then we're off for a week. We'll come back on the 31st and be ready for verse 17. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for 
Thank you for not only making your will known and putting it in writing, but then indwelling each one of us with the spirit of truth. I thank you, Father, that the teaching ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, is is alive and powerful. It's active. It pierces. I thank you, Father, that uh, it, it can search all things, even the deep things of God. We thank you, Father, that while there may be concepts that are beyond our finite capacity, we have infinite capacity graciously supplied through the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So I, I just thank you for the assets we have in the church age that allow us to study to show ourselves approved. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.